Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are. Welcome to the Land of Israel Network, landofisrael.com. Folks, we got a great show for you today. We have Ambassador Michael Oren talking about his amazing book, Ally. After that, uh, we have Knesset member Rabbi Yehuda Glick talking about the challenges of the community of Otniel and a conference about going up to the Temple Mount and the rights of the Jewish people on the Temple Mount. And finally, we have uh, part three of the show is Spiritual Cafe with Rabbi Mike Foyer. And we all know how important it is to get ready for Shabbat, get ready for the Torah portion. But especially this week, Parshat Bereshit, we're starting it all off. Let's start it off right. So we're going to have a great show for you today. Let's start off with Ambassador Michael Oren. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are. I'm in the Prime Minister's office building right now, and I'll tell you just in a second what I'm doing in this uh, important, fortified, and a very busy hub of Israeli diplomacy and efforts to strengthen Israel. We'll talk about that in a second. First, let me tell you how I got here. It was a few months ago that Israel had its famed Book Week all over Jerusalem and throughout the country, many stands, centers of purchasing books uh, and Israeli books, new books, new titles, old titles, academic titles, everything is out there. And I'm looking around and I'm saying to myself, don't buy too many things. Don't do it. Don't fill the house up with more stuff. And as I was walking, I saw a brand new book had just come out. And the name of the book was Ally by Michael Oren, the former ambassador of Israel to the United States. And I thought to myself, oh, that, that's my kind of book. That's what I want to read. And what I was uh, so interested in the book is that it was almost a contemporary account uh, of what was going on in Israeli diplomacy with the great superpower, the United States of America. Now, one of my favorite books and listeners to my show know is The Prime Ministers. I have read and reread that book And I just love the insider sense of Israeli politics, Israeli diplomacy, and how it all works. One of my critiques always of that book was that it seemed to be a little too nice to Israeli politics. It seemed to kind of paint it with a British aristocratic brush. And sometimes you didn't know if it was really the way it was because modern politics is a lot more grimy. This book, Ally, really surprised me. I was expecting a book that um, was going to sweep things under the carpet, and it turned out to be anything but a very real account of political players that are that are active right now. And that's actually one of the surprises of the book. How could a book of an Israeli ambassador be written so, so quickly? Uh, the Prime Minister's was written years after these things took place. But this book was almost as though we were reading things that were still happening in the news today. Uh, subsequently, I bumped into Ambassador Oren, and I asked him, can I do an interview uh, about this book. And he said yes. And that's what, ladies and gentlemen, we're doing here in the Prime Minister's office because Michael Oren, who you may know as an American-born Israeli historian, an author, a politician, and was the former ambassador to the United States from 2009 to 2013. That's what this book is about. He's currently a member uh, in the Knesset of the Kulanu Party, and he's also the Deputy Minister for Diplomacy here in the Prime Minister's office. Oren has written many books, Uh, Many of you have read The Six Days of War. Uh, You've heard also about uh, the connection, the the story of of the West's connection to Israel through power, faith, and fantasy, and also another book called Making of the Modern Middle East. He's got a whole load of accolades. He's uh, he's a member of many 
university staffs, a distinguished fellow at the Shalem Center, and so on and so forth. And he's also a great author. Michael Oren, thank you so much for letting me join you in your office. Thank you for coming. Yishai, shalom. So um, when I got this book, I really, uh, as I said, I had certain expectations, and I, 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 they were challenged. Mm-hmm. Another, another reason that I had certain expectations is because oftentimes um, – I, I sense that, that that I thought that you were on a different political. I thought of myself as different, differing with some of your uh, political stances. But I learned throughout the book to really respect and understand uh, where you're you're coming from. Let's let's start really from the beginning, which is where your book starts, which is not at your job, but ha- rather as you as a kid, and surprisingly for an accomplished person, a kid with learning disabilities, uh, who had a dream. Tell me a little bit about how you start the book and yourself as a child? Well, first of all, the, the question is, how do you start a book like this? Uh, is it just about the period when I was in Washington, about four and a half years, the overlap between uh, the first and second Obama administrations and um, the government uh, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, which in itself is a rather compelling story? Uh, or do I start something about myself? And it was a debate in structuring a book. I know as an author, the first question you say, okay, what's in the book? What's out of the book? How do you build a story? And I decided to start at a certain event in my life, which was my uh, chance encounter with the Israel's ambassador to the United States in 1970. Uh, his name was Yitzhak Rabin. I got to shake his hand, and that had a big influence on my life. I decided right on the spot that that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be uh, Israel's ambassador to the United States. Uh, there were a couple of problems. One of the problems was, as you said, Yishai, I would say a person who had some severe learning disabilities. What does that mean? I'm dyslexic. Um, I have all sorts of interesting di- di- disabilities. I um, can't see a straight line. Uh, I couldn't spell. I couldn't do math. Uh, in those days, they didn't know what learning disabilities were, so if you couldn't do these things, you were stupid. So I was put into the, the stupid classes. Uh, they had no problem using the word retarded back then. And, um, and that, became a, uh, that became sort of a self-fulfilling situation in the sense if you were stupid you got the stupid classes you got the stupid teachers you got the bad grades you could never get out of there it was sort of a life sentence you know you were being fast-tracked at best being uh, you know pumping gas somewhere and um, I also had physical disabilities I had to wear a brace on my legs because my legs were crooked I was uh, I was not in any way um, athletic sounds Forrest Gumpish it was it was it was it was pretty much a disaster um, as a kid. I can't really say I had much going for me. I did have one ability, and I must say, from an early age, I started writing. Age twelve, I started writing. I had a, a there was a teacher in the school who noticed that I could write and thought, hey, maybe this kid is not uh, mentally disabled, um, or and 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 and, and, uh, and put me in an advanced class. And that um, I had to teach myself how to spell. I had to teach myself basic grammar. I can't say I know much about math to this day, and began to pull myself out of it and straightened out my legs and, and became involved in athletics. I'm involved in athletics to this day and um, and was able to realize a number of dreams, um, becoming a writer, uh, becoming an academic, um, but also I had another set of dreams, which were completely separate from all those, and those were dreams were about uh, becoming an Israeli um, and serving the state of Israel and serving my people. Um, and again, from the perspective of someone growing up in s- suburban New Jersey in a working class neighborhood, uh, how was I going to somehow become Israel's ambassador to the United States or somehow get into the chair w- from which I'm talking to you now in the prime minister's office? And, wh- and uh, why Israel? You know, America, a nice country. You're from West Orange. New Jersey. And West Orange, New Jersey. I know it very well myself. I mean, you know it now because a lot of Jews there. 
uh, when I grew up, I was the only Jew. Mm. Interesting. It became a firm community. But, um, you know, I don't have a very good explanation. I grew up in, in a very assimilated family. Um, I read my bar mitzvah in transliteration. I, I, I just got kicked out of Hebrew school anyway. Couldn't do Hebrew school. And, um, but, 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 but. First of all, was it the little country that could? Was that, was, that, was, that, was that kind of a reflection of yourself? Well, yeah, I lived during the period of the Six-Day War. Mm-hmm. And you could not have lived through that period and not be inspired by Israel. Um, but it was more than that. I lived in a, in a very anti-Semitic neighborhood. I, lived, I was the only Jewish kid. I used to get the stuffing beat out of me all the time. My father had land, landed on Normandy Beach, his brother too. And um, his brother, my Uncle Joe, was a, um, became a career officer. Actually, both my father and my Uncle Joe were career officers in the U.S. military. They had liberated some Nazi work camps, and they took pictures. And uh, every time I get beaten up by these uh, anti-Semites in my neighborhood, my father would take me down to the basement. Uh, in a cubby hole behind the chair, behind the stairway was an album, and he blow the dust off this album, and he showed me pictures of um, of emaciated corpses of Nazis standing in front of these piles of bodies and laughing. And my father would say to me, "You see that? You see that? That's why we need a strong Israel." Beyond that, though, I always had a, um, from the earliest age, I had a, a personal relationship with God. Uh, not many Israeli politicians talk about this. I you recently released a video about this as well. I did, and I, I came under a lot of flack in Israel. Not in America, but in Israel, all right? Um, but I don't care. I have a personal relationship with God, and I, I see myself as very much, uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to serve my people. That, that's little do I see. Um, you know, I have opportunities outside of politics to certainly take it easy and probably make a better living. Um, but I can't think of any better way to spend your life than serving Israel and the Jewish people. You know, you said something that's, um, that well, you, you kind of, at first you said, well, I don't know exactly where the Israel thing comes from, but to me it becomes very obvious the, the minute you told that story, which, by the way, I don't remember that story in the book about the about the the album i think it's in there it is i, I, I think I, it is you know I'm, I, I'm already, yeah. i got you know i got out of the kids zone quickly yeah. and into and into the politics zone but i, I don't yeah. remember that but that that to me is a very powerful uh, uh, image and one of the problems that american jewry has today if we can skip to, to to this topic is is that they don't know anybody who's gone to the american army they don't know any cops the police officers they don't know even anybody in construction they don't sense that courage is a daily need and in 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 their life and their professions it's not like a necessary characteristic trait and many of them most of them have not really felt the tinge of anti-semitism and therefore they don't understand israel because they can't relate they can't relate to what it is to be tough and they can't really relate what it is to be under attack and therefore the crowd that a lot of times i think that you've tailored your book to and we'll talk about if they accepted it that way the liberal crowd they lack those faculties of sensing what toughness is and the necessity of it. And you kind of are coming from that place. You still may very well be a liberal in terms of your liberal perspective towards humanity, but you understand the need for a strong Jewish state. Where, where are they? Well, there are many, many differences between the Israeli Jewish community and, uh, and the American Jewish community. We have different histories. Um, you know, you say to the average Israeli the word Selma, Look at you and say, "Oh, what? Well, it's, it's I have a distant relative in Long Island named named Selma." You say Selma to an American Jew, and it has an instant resonance. You don't have to explain what it means because this was the this was the apogee of the American Jewish experience—the marching with Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King. That was it. 
um, say to an American Jew, uh, do you remember the withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000 and what happened? The thousands of rockets that have been fired at us from Hezbollah since then. Do you remember the disengagement from Gaza in 2005 and the thousands of rockets that have been fired at us uh, from Hamas? They won't remember that. Most people have no recollection of that. Even people who are involved in Israel have right. very little recollection of that. Do you remember the offer that Ehud Barak made to Yasser Arafat in 2000? Uh, a Palestinian state in almost the entire West Bank, half of Jerusalem, all of Gaza, turned down by Arafat. They don't remember that. And neither do they remember the offer made by Ehud Olmert in 2008, which was even more generous than the Ehud Barak offer. So we have different histories. And we have different present tense as well. Like, you were alluding to the fact that very few American Jews go into the military or know about service. Um... But it's beyond that. Very few American Jews are working class today. Mm-hmm. All right? My American Jewish family is two to three generations removed from the working class. My grandparents were carpenters and mechanics, but already, you know, my, my kids, my grandkids, they, they won't remember that. Israel remains, to a very large extent, a working class society. So there's even a class difference right. uh, between us. Uh, how many American Jews know what it is to get but under a hood of a car and fix a car? Right, but that's all fine. And that's mm-hmm. all fine, but but there's a distance that's being caused by those by those cultural differences, and even a rejection of Israel for being that tough country, for being that car mechanic country. Uh, there, there's there's a push away from Israel, seemingly. You know, someone once said to me, the, the problem with American Jews isn't self hatred; it's self love. <laughs> that uh, that they that that it's it's very easy to be to to, um, to claim a moral high ground when there's no one trying to uh, kill you at the bottom of the moral high ground, right. all right? If no one's trying to you know, literally throw, off, throw you off the mountain and kill you, um, if you don't have to face the, uh, the immensely complex choices that Israel has to face of having to defend itself, for example, against uh, Hamas terrorists who are firing rockets at our, at our neighborhoods, um, and they're firing from within their own neighborhoods because they, they want to not only kill our kids, they want us to kill their kids. And that is immensely to get media points mm? to get media points to get media points. But today they li- they are they are acutely aware, Ishai, that the the battlefield today is not the actual battlefield. The battlefield is the UN, it's the International Criminal Court. So the Hamas has what I call a a military tactic that serves a media and diplomatic and legal strategy. Can I take a second on this one? Sure. They know they can't destroy us with the rockets. And they know they, we have, they have tried and failed. They to can't. Beat us not, the they, they, all the rockets, Hezbollah can't destroy us with the rockets. They can pose a serious threat, but destroy us, they cannot do that. Uh, and we have Iron Dome, and they know we have Iron Dome, which means nine out of every ten rockets are going to fire at us. We're going to take down. But what they can do is create a situation where our life becomes insufferable under these rockets attacks. We have to strike back. We're going to strike back first from the air. But as we've known for the last four wars with Hezbollah and Hamas, air power has its limits. Eventually, we're going to have to send the army in. And many, many Palestinians or Lebanese are going to be killed. The media, they know how to they manipulate the media. The media is going to make us look like war criminals. That is going to put, as uh, what Obama and John Kerry called terrible pictures coming out of Gaza, remember, in 2014, terrible pictures, appalling pictures. That is immediately going to um, put into motion diplomatic uh, efforts to condemn us, whether in Security Council or other forms, the, the Goldstone Report is a classic case. Uh, 
And then that becomes the basis for boycotts and sanctions um, in, say, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, Human Rights Council. Um, and that is a strategic threat to the state of Israel. The rockets can't take us down, but the boycotts can. The denying us the right to defend ourselves and denying us the right to exist as a Jewish state, that's the strategic threat. And the terrorists are smart. Delegitimization. That's what it's about. Right. The rockets are about delegitimization. And um, in that way, you know, I'm very proud that I was able to bring— that means that you're in the forefront. If you're in the, if you're in the fight for Israel's legitimacy— uh, In more ways than one. For example, I'm very proud for the fact that I brought the—as ambassador, I brought the aid for Iron Dome, which wasn't—it wasn't a given, by the way. We had to, we had to uh, convince the, the United States and the Congress that, this, was, that this, this technology actually worked. There were many people leaking to the New York Times that this was a false technology, if you remember, that, that we were greatly inflating the, the success rates. And um, we had to convince them that it worked, and we got the aid, and we got the Iron Dome up and running. But Iron Dome is, and I say this, this is going to surprise you now, Iron Dome is a two-edged sword. Why? Think about what the terrorists want. The terrorists want to create a situation of disproportionality, where they are killing few Israelis, and we are killing a lot of their civilians. Iron Dome creates the proportionality. Yes, it saves thousands of lives particularly Palestinian lives, because if we didn't have Iron Dome, we'd have to send in the army and conquer Gaza. We'd kill thousands of civilians, we, whether we want to or not. We, we would not want to, but we'd have to go and fight a major war inside a densely populated area. So Iron Dome saves that, saves us from doing that. But on the other hand, few Israelis get killed because of Iron Dome, and many more Palestinians. Disproportionality. It doesn't look good. It, it not just doesn't look good, they use that as a basis right. of condemning us and delegitimizing us. So, it's, so Iron Dome itself is, is a challenge for us. So, so delegitimization is an effort to, to tarnish Israel's name and blacken its eye and also maybe cut it off uh, economically and otherwise on the international scene. But we have a secret weapon, and that is our ally. The United States of America. Our Why great are you friend. smiling? <laughs> You're smiling. Uh, smiling because that is the name of the book, and that's yes. the premise of the book. And the word ally is used there uh, uh, a few times to really underscore this idea of here's a human being, Michael Oren, who is an ambassador, but he's more than an ambassador of one country to another. He's, in another sense, an ambassador uh, both ways, culturally speaking. He's partially American. He's partially Israeli. He understands. I think that that Shapiro, Dan Shapiro, tries to do that kind of thing from the American side here. Um, and everything would be great if it wasn't for the fact that you were also, I could kind of Im imagine you in my mind as a referee wearing black and white stripes between two great titans, and that is Prime Minister Netanyahu and this uh, unusual American president, Barack Obama. A, a transformative American president in so many ways. Right. Domestically, yes, but in foreign policy, um, one of the most profound transformations, uh, not just in American diplomatic history, but in diplomatic history in general. We've taken a, 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 a state, the United States of America, which was the world's leading military power, uh, had immense influence uh, around the world. Um, even after the, the very problematic uh, military involvements in Iraq and Afghanistan, America. The example I always give you, Shay, in December of 2007, uh, then-President George Bush decided to convene uh, a peace conference at Annapolis. Remember it? He, he, within two weeks, he decided to do this, and 48 countries attended. The leaders of 48 countries attended. This is after Iraq, after Afghanistan. 
Today, if America was to convene a peace conference, I ask you, how many countries would come? I don't know. Not a lot. It's a, it's a different, it's a different uh, America. It's a different America. But listen, how many years have passed? It's, it's less than a decade. That decade has been trans- transformative. And that decade, America retreated from international involvements. Um, and President Obama was very upfront. Uh, the book uh, has the most controversial section in my book is called Obama 101. And it, it's about the, the time early on my, uh, in my uh, tenure in 2009 where I used all my uh, skills that I had learned as an historian, and I brought them to bear on the person and worldview of the President of the United States. And I read every speech he ever read, and everyone gave, every, every interview, every article, um, every statement, and put together a worldview. And I, I'm kind of shocked in retrospect just how accurate that worldview was back in 2009. Cause, and what I said was that here was a president who, first of all, has, is very ambivalent about American power. His most interesting line was, and I heard it, I was there, I was at the nuclear summit in 2010, he says, whether we like it or not, America is the world's leading military power. Basically, that's all you have to know, the rest is commentary. Because there are those of us in the world who wake up and say a bracha, say a prayer, that America is the world's leading military power. We've lived through periods where America wasn't the world's leading power, and the Jewish people have paid very heavily for that indeed. Uh, But here is a man saying, I'm ambivalent about it. Uh, a person who was going to take a, a president who was going to take a collegial approach to international affairs. We're not going to be leading. We're going to lead with other people together. Sometimes referred to as leading from from behind. We are going to give or a, leading with Congress or leading with n- not making decisive steps, not taking decisive. But steps. But that's what you broadcast to the world. Uh, and a heavy dependence or heavy respect, however you want to put it, on international organizations like the UN, which have been problematic for the state of Israel. Right. All that has come to pass. I don't think that that section, Obama 101, be so controversial today as it was when, it first, when the book first came let, out. Let me actually read a, a little uh, excerpt from the book. Page 353, it's already towards the end of the book. It's way past Obama 101. It's really uh, towards the end of your time there. And Obama uh, and, and Netanyahu are in a meeting, and Obama assures Netanyahu, quote, Yes. If war comes, we're with you because that's what the American people want, end quote. That remark recalled the conclusion I reached back in 2009, that Obama's position on Israel reflected his understanding of its place in American affections. Still, I found myself wishing that the president would say just once, we're with you because it's the right thing to do, or we're with you because that's in America's interest. We're with you because we're both strategically and morally together. Israel is our ally. Right. But he didn't say that. He did not. And... um it was my frustration. It was my frustration. And and, um, and, and what's what surprised me is that you wrote about it. See, this is this is this is again kind of the 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 edge of the book. You, you know, had you waited until you're out of politics, out of this office, mm-hmm. and written this book, and waited until Obama's out of office, but you wrote it, and 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 we know that the Obama administration was angered by this book. Oh yes. Oh yes. And you're Maybe. still in diplomacy with that administration. I am indeed. I am indeed. Tell me about that. Well, first of all, I understand to write a book like this. Right. um, It has to go through uh, a vetting process. And in the state of Israel, a book like this goes through seven different vetting processes. The uh, defense ministry, the foreign ministry, the justice ministry, the Mossad uh, has to go through this book with a fine tooth comb. 
uh, since knowing I, I understood the parameters very well, they took out very little. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there is in this building, um, three floors below us, there is a interministerial committee that determines whether a book like this um, will in any way impair Israel's foreign relations. And I had to pass that committee as well. I, I, I mean, uh, something doesn't compute there. Well, no, listen, because... I mean, it computes, but like, th- this is a book that stirs the pot. It stirs the pot in the relationship. It, it, it very gently, from a liberal Jewish perspective, calls a man out, calls out a, a certain policy. So obviously, I won't be surprising you by saying that I went through serious introspection before writing this book. Um, deep introspection and would pace back and forth and sometimes change my mind several times a night about whether or not just to write the book. And at the end of the day, what swayed me was what I believe was my duty and the great need to tell our truth. And there were a tremendous amount of uh, truths from different sources that didn't correspond to our truth, Uh, whether it be about the peace process, whether it be about the Iran nuclear deal, in, in retrospect, it's interesting, um, in the book I write about a, a true crisis point for me, not just in the relationship, but a crisis point for me, and that is in November 2014. Um, the fact that the United States had been negotiating secretly with Iran for seven months, we thought, at least I thought, was a crisis point for me, because how you could, this is our number one ally in the world, negotiating secretly with our number one enemy. Without letting any guess on it, and how? What does alliance mean after that? How could I could even say, use the word ally? It's based on trust. It's based on commonality of interests. It's based on many things. Um, Iran is a country that openly declares its intention of wiping us off the mats. It's a genocidal regime. Now that has a certain resonance for the Jewish people. You'll agree, and they're not just saying it; they're acting on it. And here is our greatest ally negotiating with us secretly, but it turns out that we now know that the United States have been negotiating with Iran for far longer than that. And not only during the period of uh, President Rouhani, the supposed moderate, but during the period of... Uh, uh, of uh, Ahmadinejad, Ahmadinejad. Who uh, was out there in front of the whole world stage calling for the destruction of Israel. Israel. Denying the Holocaust. So yeah, it's actually, the situation is actually much... Our truth is much more important in light of the, the revelations that have, that have occurred since the book came out. So, this book has a, a few different aspects of it. Uh, it you weave uh, the personal life, which we talked a little bit about, your learning disabilities, the, that beginning. Uh, it also weaves uh, the ambassadorial duties, which you describe, uh, which really, you made it look like a lot of fun also. Busy, but you also went to a lot of events, all kinds of iftars to dances, Irish dancing. Uh, Reenactments of Civil War battles, because I'm, I'm a Civil War nut. Right, right. And I was there during the 150th anniversary, so I went to Gettysburg, Manassas. Uh, they, they didn't quite know what to do with this ambassador showing up at the reenactment of Gettysburg. Right, and you also yeah. write that Israel is one of the centers of Irish music uh, outside uh-huh. of Ireland. Well, I, I, I uh, embarked on a, pro- on, a, on a series of evenings that were outreach to various communities. Uh, I had an Hispanic evening, a Greek evening, uh, and, of course, an Irish evening. And I always brought an Israeli band. Um, and we do it with music. So we brought David Broza. That's great Spanish music. And we right. had an Hispanic evening. But there's also, I, I 
have loved Irish music ever since I was in high school. I play Irish music, and um, I brought Israel's number one Irish band. It's called Evergreen uh, from the Galilee. Wonderful musicians, and we had an Irish night with kosher Irish food and Guinness and whiskey, and we played all night long. Good stuff. Great That's stuff. fun. Yeah. So we talked about one titan, which is... Uh, Obama and you're in the middle with in this transformative and that's for you also painful and challenging you're pro-american you're coming there with uh, as a as an American I grew up during the civil rights movement right. my father worked very very closely with the african-american community he himself was a bridge between the Jewish community and african-american community all these things were very personal to me right and you describe also having to renounce your American citizenship to go serve Israel in America and the painful process of Which that. is an American requirement, not an Israeli requirement. Mm -hmm. And it's painful. So, but, and, and you had to deal with the Obama administration, which, as we say, is in a nice way saying transformative to towards Israel and, their, and American power. You had to deal with another personality, and that is the personality uh, that you're working for right now in this very office. This office building is the prime minister's office building. It's Netanyahu's office building. What people don't understand, by the way, maybe, is that the prime minister's office in Israel is a kind of shadow government. It's its own mini government. It has, it has elements of security elements and intelligence elements and other elements uh, and diplomacy elements. This building itself houses a lot of uh, kind of mini direct under the supervision of the prime minister. And parts of your book are also the an analyst academic in you. And I enjoyed, I, I laughed out loud uh, when I read this section just because of the, uh, the kind of, uh, that, that you gave us an insight on the, on, the, on the man. I'll read a little bit just for a second. Uh, this basically, there's a part that talks about Israel's politics and how, um, how, 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 how challenging it is, how, how uh, balkanized it is. And you write, Nevertheless, Netanyahu remained in office, virtually unopposed. For years, no one succeeded. No other politician could engender, engender the sense of security that Israelis, for all their grounding, for all their grousing about uh, Netanyahu, needed to feel at night when tucking in their children. The majority of Israelis could not trust anybody else to manage war, meet the Iranian nuclear threat, and prevent a Gaza-like Hamas state from arising in the West Bank. One way or another, one Israeli pundit told me, every election for the past 20 years has been about Bibi. And each time he had won. Benjamin Netanyahu might not always be loved, not by his people, not even by his own party, but neither could he be replaced. This was the Netanyahu I'd come to know. A man of mighty contradictions. Less than a modern Jew, he reminded me of an ancient Hebrew, a biblical figure with biblical strengths, flaws, appetites, valors, and wrath. Uh, scything, is that the way you pronounce that word? Scything, yes. Sc scything <laughs> is foes with rhetorical and political jawbones. That's, of course, Re uh, reference to, to Samson. Yeah. That's right. Uncannily yeah. uh, robust. He retained, he retained in his 60s the physical heft and endurance of a Sayyarat Matkal, that's Israel's uh, top army unit, uh, where he was a captain, only rarely revealing the depths of his exhaustion. Though he tried to get five hours of sleep each night, somebody's got to drive, he said. Netanyahu rarely got more than four and was frequently awakened by emergencies. Yeah. And you're still working for the man. Yeah, you're I still am. working for the man. You know, it was one of the hardest parts of the book to write. It's a four-page um, profile of Netanyahu. Right. By the way, I've never called him Bibi. Not once. Right. Um, and it was a hard problem. He read it. He said, he looked at me, he says, yeah, he got about 80% right. <laughs> <laughs> he says, that's not bad. Um, the key to understanding that now is to understand that he, he sees himself as a, not, a, not of a man at, in history, a man of history, that he is in his job in order to well, fulfill a historic role, which not every leader 
feels that way. By, I, by the way, Obama saw himself in those terms too. I don't think uh, Ehud, uh, uh, I don't think Ehud Barak or Ehud, um, Ehud Omer thought themselves as historically transformative figures, um, but but Netanyahu does, and and Obama did, which is part of the the reason for these the rather intense dynamic between these two men, because um, they have different roles, and um, you, you put it. Simply, uh, Netanyahu saw his role as, as saving Israel uh, from a nuclear-armed Iran, uh, whereas Obama saw his role as reconciling the United States and Iran. How about that for a clash? Right, right there. Right. Um, and, and one could mm-hmm. say that in that round, uh, President Obama won. That round right now, for the time being. All right. We contributed, I think, materially to... Uh, squeezing Iran. And I don't think there would have been sanctions the way the sanctions were mounted without Netanyahu and the state of Israel. Um, and we may have delayed the program in other ways. But uh, at the ultimate time, we still have to deal with the outcome of this uh, of this agreement and prepare for whatever we have to prepare for. That's our duty as a sovereign Jewish state. But as for um, Netanyahu, he's one of the most one of the more fascinating figures. And I can say this as an historian. I, I could take that step back and be academic. Um, yes, I work with him. Um, but, uh, and I stand by every word I, what you just read, Nishai. I'm even a member of a different party, keep in mind. I'm not even right. a member of, of, of Netanyahu's party. Just a word about um, one of the goals of the book was to um, touch on what I called nuggets. The word doesn't appear in the book, but I'll tell you about it. What were nuggets? I always wanted to inform my reader of the differences between Israeli culture and American culture, and particularly between Israeli political culture and American political culture. So, for example, the Americans may think of Lincoln as a person who managed a team of rivals. Believe me, you don't know what a team of rivals is until you have a cabinet in Israel where every member of the cabinet is a potential prime minister and working to unseat the prime minister. Okay, that's, that's a team of rivals. You don't know what it is to be a national leader where your government can fall any day. You, don't have, a four, you have a four-year term, but only in theory. Um, you don't know what it is to live in a political culture where people do not salute the rank. If they salute at all, maybe they salute the person. I, you know, again, I grew up in a military family. My father always taught me you salute the rank, not the person. If you're a president of the United States, you are Mr. President even after you cease being president in Israel. Once you cease being prime minister, you're Ehud, okay? You're Udi. <laughs> there's, no, there's no respect for rank here. And, uh, and it's difficult. These, these gaps in our political culture sometimes can have profound ramifications in our relationships. That is very interesting indeed. Uh, and, and you are also Mr. Ambassador. Right. But you're also Michael. And you'll talk about that in the book, kind of leaving the ranks uh, at some point and in getting back to kind of Israel, back to nature, back to... Back you, wa- to you, wa- you walk into an American audience, even today, when I walk into a room of Americans, everyone stands up. Because that's what you do for an ambassador. You right. walk into an Israeli room, everyone, you're lucky if they look at you. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So, so uh, you're in between uh, these, uh, these two titan figures... Uh, Netanyahu and Obama, they're very much uh, on different uh, sides uh, of the of the coin. They're really that ally. The, basically, the whole storyline of the book is there's an ally relationship, and yet it's it's fraying at the edges, and there's a serious serious disagreement about the future. And of course, we saw it. We saw Netanyahu go to Congress. We saw him get in Obama's face. And I want I, now I, I want to ask just a quick question about something that's not in the book. 
I saw just now the funeral. I don't know why, but I watched the funeral of Shimon Peres, and I saw the body language between the Prime Minister of Israel and the President of the United States. It was cold. It was cold as ice. It was. I'm, I was talking about. I'm talking about like, you know. And I didn't. I. I was. I was amazed at that tension. Um, Did I'm, I, I that? say in the book that I'm a lousy reader of body language. Maybe it's the dyslexic thing. I, I never read body language well, mm-hmm. but um, I was surprised at Obama's uh, eulogy. He mentioned God. He not just mentioned God. He ma- he said that justice lies at the heart of the Zion- of Zionism. He mentioned. I couldn't believe this. He mentioned the, the, the Judeo-Christian ethic and the presence of some Muslim leaders. I've never heard him use those terms. And I thought to myself, you know, I wish he had said those things back in 2009. Because if he had, remember, I, one of the messages that I bring to my American counterparts again and again as ambassador is, Israelis are flexible when you show us love. Right. When we feel secure. If you threaten us, we will hunker down, and you won't get anything from us. And if the president, if the president had, instead of skipping over Israel in his trip to Cairo and going the Buchenwald, if he had stopped in Israel and said, in the heart of Zionism is justice, and we represent the same Judeo-Christian ethic, if he had said that in 2009, who knows how things might have turned out. Well, I think some people actually appreciate the Obama presidents exactly for that, for creating what, what you are trying so much to hold together, which is an ally relationship, but a little bit of daylight in that Israel needs a certain amount of independence in action and other things. And to some extent, the Obama coldness, distancing, all the things that you just talked about was also a useful element in Israel that it gave back to Israelis a sense of, look, we got to do what we need to do. Uh. And we need to act. In now you're saying something I say on, on Israeli media, and only in recent months, and that is we have to look back on the Obama administration period as a time of opportunity. Let's face it, we were kind of kicked out of the nest. <laughs> and, uh, and it's not just us, many countries in the world. And uh, the fact that the, the prime minister now has traveled to the Far East several times, to Africa, it has made uh, our foreign policy much more proactive uh, and made other states more interested in interacting with us. You know, I, I, I grew up, I have no idea how old you are, but I grew up in 40. the period, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat older, um, I'm a lot older. Um, I grew up in the period of, of Kissingerian diplomacy and what became known as the Pax Americana. When Kissinger weaned Egypt out of the Soviet orbit in 1972-73, th- th- these were the pivotal events, uh, geostrategic events in my lifetime. We've now seen the reversed. The Russians are back. They're back on our borders. Um, But not only the Russians back, the Chinese are back, uh, asserting themselves in the South China Sea. Iran is is ascendant. We, that whole legacy with which I grew up has ended, but it's forced Israel and many other countries in the world to say, okay, we're in a post-America era perhaps, and we're, we have to rely on ourselves. So here's the good news. We are a strong country. At 68 years old, believe it or not, we are older than more than half the countries in the UN. I never thought of it that yeah. way. We are <laughs> one of maybe the five or six democracies in the world that has never known a second of non- non-democratic governance. Think about this. We are listed by most international criteria as the seventh or eighth most powerful country in the world. 
Our army is more than twice as large as the French and British army combined, Shai. We have a dynamic economy. Think about this. We are, we are strategically poised at the, at the nexus between three continents. I mean, really. We're tough. And we will always value our alliance with the United States of America. No other country will give us the aid package that we just signed for nearly $40 billion over 10 years. No other country will share our values. 71% of Americans define themselves as pro-Israel, which is almost an all-time high. We can, never, we can never in any way diminish the importance of this relationship. We should always say to the United States, thank you, thank you, thank you. But once in a while, we have to say, thank you, but. Just once in a while. And, um, and at the same time, we can stand on our own two feet much better. We have to. And uh, it's about time, frankly. We are a mature and sovereign Jewish state. All right, I could I could just end the end it right there, and it yeah. would be a perfect ending. But I still need to ask you just just to lichaches, uh, give me give me one or two words on these things, because because my listeners will say Yishai, you didn't ask him this, and I have what? to ask this very quickly. Number one, um, Shimon Peres was buried. That speech was given as we talked about. There was also a sense that two state solution was being buried. That was my sense. Being that, buried. Yes, it was being buried with Shimon Peres. It went down. It was. It was. It was going down. It was. It was not going to happen. We have ISIS on our borders, mm. and nobody believes anymore that the Abbasas of this world are real peace partners. Nobody believes that it's a good idea to. You should come to Knesset. There's some people who believe it. All right, but the, <laughs> but the, but they're fewer and fewer, and yeah. the Knesset is proving it. The yes, Knesset is actually. Uh, uh, it's funny again. I started my campaign in 2015 with a certain idea. I, I published it in the Wall Street Journal. It was called the two-state situation where I said basically there's nobody on the other side. There's nobody on the other side and our goal is to protect ourselves against delegitimization and to ensure our future as a democratic and Jewish state. That's our goal. In, in, you know, great if there was some Palestinian Sadat out there but there's not. Um, and at the beginning the Labor Party and the people sort of the moderate left in Israel completely dismissed this approach. Today they're all there. Even Bougie Herzog is there, right there, right where I was, saying there's no partner out there, we gotta take steps to protect ourselves. Um, and that's our reality. I believe that Eretz Yisrael belongs to Am Yisrael. All of it, okay? I can't be more unequivocal than that. All of it. However, there's another people out there, 2.5 million or so in the West Bank, and we can't, we can't ignore them. And um, and we do want to preserve ourselves. The Jew, our sovereignty as a Jewish and sovereign, a democratic state is, is predicated on a solid Jewish majority, and we have to preserve that. And in the world, uh, we are perceived as occupiers. I never use the O word because you can't occupy your own homeland. It's like saying you know a Sioux Indian is occupying his his his, his native land. You can't do that. Nor can you tell a Jew, say or can you say that a Jew does not have to write to live in his or her homeland, because these are our native lands. They're our native lands. If I'm willing to make any sacrifice someday, it's only because we have to preserve ourselves as a democratic Jewish state and protect ourselves against delegitimization. So I'm interested in, in proactive steps that will, um, will solidify what I call a two-state situation. What is a two-state situation? And you know this well, that the, you know, Israel is not occupying Janine. It's not occupying Nablus. 90% of Palestinians never come into contact with, a, with an Israeli Jew, certainly not with a soldier. Let them have their autonomy. Make it strong. Make it economically viable. Uh, give them a buy-in to the future. We will say that our position remains the two-state solution. That's what the prime minister says. That's what the defense minister says. Uh, Victor Lieberman says that. It is. 
Will it happen tomorrow? Um, God forbid. Why God forbid? Because you have a Palestinian uh, entity. If it was a state tomorrow, it would have no national institutions. It would have a corrupt, unelected leadership. It would probably collapse within a day or two. And not just the Hamas, as you know. Now we can't have that. So if you want to work toward a two-state solution, and I say this to our European friends all the time, help them build institutions. It took us 60 years to build the institutions on which the state was built. Help the Palestinians do that. Um, help them gain a sense of national coherence that they don't have. Um, you know, they don't have necessarily have an idea of kol Yisrael aravim lezeh. We are all responsible for one another. And in this job now, I'm trying to make some of that happen. Um, much of what I do, I don't talk about, which is good. Um, and uh, that should be our position. It is a, it is a viable uh, diplomatic position for the world, which will protect us, I believe, ultimately against uh, delegitimization, and one which we can engage with, with our Western friends. We could not do it with the outgoing administration in the United States, which was ideologically um, very inflexible. I mean, you had to, if you said, listen, Gilo is not a settlement, they're not going to believe that. You know, French Hill is not a settlement, they're not going to believe that. Anything beyond that 1949 armistice line was a settlement, which no Israelis believe, really. Finally, the Israeli who thinks that Gilo is a settlement. Maybe one person in Knesset. So, um, may we hopefully now... When the new administration comes in, we'll have more flexibility and we'll have, uh, we can create, lay the groundwork for what I call the two-state situation, which is something I think is in Israel's interest. Lots to talk about in that, in that uh, for that question. Last question. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, one, the last one and then there's the tiny, tiny last one. And okay. that is uh, $40, $40 billion new aid package you talked about. A lot of people, many of my listeners would say, does Israel really need that? Doesn't Israel, shouldn't Israel, as you talked about before, have that independence, step out of the nest, and, and work as an ally, work in partnership, but do we need an aid package? Doesn't that look bad for us? Doesn't that have a negative psychological effect on us? Uh, should, the shouldn't aid, the didn't aid Netanyahu promise us to shrink that package instead of No, he promised it? to shrink the, 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 the civilian aid, and he, he basically he ended the civilian aid. Israel used to get civilian aid uh, from the United States as well. We have the military package. The military package has many, many uh, values to it. Uh, it's not just the, the money. First of all, it's sending a message to the world about America's commitment to uh, Israel's security. It creates a vested American interest in Israel. Where does the money go? especially this new package, at the end of the day, it's all going to be spent in the United States. It creates tens of thousands of jobs. It, uh, it is a subsidy for the American arms industry, which is very, very important for the United States and for its economy and for the world economy. So um, I, I have a feeling if one day Israel were to say, okay, we've had enough of the aid, the first people would say no <laughs> would be the United States. I'll end with an interesting story that doesn't appear in the book. Okay, You know, Israel's had a... Um, how should I say, sometimes fraught relationship with the State Department. The State Department strongly opposed the creation of Israel in 1948. Uh, for many years, it was a bastion of anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic feeling. Truman thought that the State Department was anti-Semitic. The famous Arabic State Department. Yeah, it was, it was, Arabist, what, what, what Arabist Truman State called the striped pants boys. And there's a right. reason there are 22 Arabic-speaking countries. There's only one Hebrew-speaking country. Right. And so it's a career choice. Most of the people in the State Department choose to go into the Arab, to be Arabists. 
over recent, certainly since Kissinger, Kissinger began to put Jews in the State Department. Today, about half the State Department is Jewish. It's, it's amazing. But still, it has a certain institutional attitude to this, which, is, which can be very critical. And uh, every year, I would get one call from the State Department, which surprised me. It was the call that said, whatever you do, do not agree to a reduction of American aid to Israel. You have any idea why? Because it's good for those states, for the, good for those... Because it turns out that Americans are willing to aid Israel, but they're not necessarily willing to aid Rwanda. They're not really not necessarily willing to aid Honduras. And the aid to Israel is the locomotive that pulls aid programs around the world from the United States. Even the State Department budget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The State Department would ask, but say to me, whatever you do, don't agree to reduction in aid because that would be, you know, it would, it would result in cuts across the board. That's the, that's the aid that, you know, it, it has many, many benefits in many facets that are not always um, readily ascertainable. Ambassador Michael Orn, last question for the headlines. American elections, we're at the gate. What do you say? I say that, you know, irrespective of who wins, and irrespective of who you ask here, whether you're from the right wing or the left wing or the up or the down, we all have the same interest. We all have an interest in a strong America, a united America, to the degree that it can be, an America that is willing to project force around the world when it has to, and an America that is willing to assume global leadership. Because we see what a world without America looks like, mm-hmm. you know. Two and a half hours from where we're sitting here, Yishai, you'll be in the middle of the Syrian civil war. You want to know what the world looks like without America? Go to Aleppo. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. Uh, I'm sitting with Michael Oren. Uh, ambassador Michael Oren is an American-born Israeli historian, author, politician, former ambassador to the United States, and today also uh, a member in the Knesset of the Kulano Party and Deputy Minister for Diplomacy in the Prime Minister's Office. That's where we're sitting. The book is called Ally, My Journey Across the American-Israeli Divide. The book is honestly a great read. It's an an important read. If you want to understand Israel today, this is the book. It's beautifully done. Michael Oren, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Rabbi Isaac Nissenbaum, one of the founders of the religious Zionist Mizrahi movement, wrote... The objective of Mizrahi is the total revival of our nation in all its aspects. To revive Judaism in our hearts and to revive our hearts for Judaism. The Land of Israel Network is powered by the Mizrahi World Movement. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show. If you recall, uh, a few months ago, I went to a horrific funeral, and that was the funeral of Daphna Meir, she was a woman, uh, uh, supposedly a, just an amazing person, a mother of six, uh, and was living in the beautiful community of Otniel when a terrorist entered her home, fought with her. She tried to fight him off, but in the end he overcame her and, and murdered her in, in front of her family, really. And I remember thinking to myself, I have to be at this funeral. I don't, sometimes there's a funeral that just calls to you and you say, I need to be at that funeral. And I went and I certainly took uh, uh, that day to, to make it happen. It was important to me. And I got an email recently from Knesset member Yehuda Glick 
uh, of the Likud party. And famously, he himself uh, is a victim of terror, uh, was shot four times uh, by a terrorist, uh, puncturing his lungs, and miraculously was able to uh, survive. He's a well-known uh, Temple Mount activist, now a Knesset member, a survivor of terror, but also the neighbor of Daphna Meir and his children and other children in the community of Otniel, which is also uh, in the southern Hebron Hills, so that has particular interest to me working in Hebron, uh, they have started a campaign to try to raise money to create a new path, uh, literally a path, in the land of Israel. Let me read to you what they wrote to me. They said, Dear friends, a few months ago, uh, a jihadist terrorist entered the home uh, a home in Otniel and stabbed Daphne Meir, mother of six, to death. Daphne struggled with the terrorists, saving her children, who were in the house at the time, but was defeated. We, the youth of Otniel, decided to add life in a place of death and to commemorate her bravery. We decided to establish a memorial project to build a place where children can play and laugh instead of being afraid. We are doing all the work ourselves, but we need your financial support to buy the construction materials. Hopefully, we can raise the amount we need through this Head Start fundraiser, Please click the attached link, and they sent a link. They sent a link to this uh, headstart.co.il project. Thank you, and hope to see you in Israel and in Otniel in the future. Obviously, a bright Otniel, a happy Otniel, one that the terrorists want to stop from happening. Knesset member uh, Yehuda Glick stepped out. Rabbi Yehuda Glick stepped out of the Knesset in order to meet me here uh, next to the Rose Garden, uh, in order to talk about this project of not only uh, of national importance but also of a community importance. To you, Yehuda Glick. Yehuda, tell me a little bit about about uh, uh, Daphne Meir and also another neighbor of yours, literally a neighbor of yours, who was murdered in the last year. Okay, yeah, unfortunately, Otniel and have gone through several uh, terror attacks. Uh, just even 10 years ago, there was an attack in the Yeshiva in Otniel. There were some other citizens of the Yeshiva who were killed and murdered in terror attacks. But in the past year, we really had a really tough year and we lost two very close friends of ours who were actually literally my next-door neighbors, the one on the right and one on the left. One was uh, Mickey Mark, who was the uh, administrative director of the yeshiva. And uh, before that, uh, in we had January, we had uh, Daphne Mayer, a uh, young lady who actually grew up with uh, in, in a family which was a broken family. She herself uh, actually built herself up with her own ten fingers and uh, eventually established her family she had family she had four children and then she had adopted another two she said if if i i grew up in a foster family then i'm going to adopt two of my own and uh, she really had a wonderful family she also was a very uh, well known in her open mindedness in terms of guiding women who were uh, dealing with the uh, challenges in terms of fertility and she really was was a, was a an address for so many of them she had thousands of emails she was answering questions and uh, as you said, in January, a young 16-year-old terrorist entered her house and literally slaughtered her in front of her children. Uh, Daphne Mayer's daughter is a classmate of my daughter. Her son is a classmate of my son. And uh, entirely, the Yishuv, instead of really sinking into some kind of melancholy, instead of sinking into some kind of depression, uh, the, the youth really gave us a lot of strength and power, and they decided to pave their own path around the Yishuv. It was like a place where they can go and, 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 and have hikes, and, and they, they, they dug a, a water spring, and they really, really did a lot of, a lot of activity. Uh, and now they're trying to, to put on, the, on that path different you know, uh, point, points of view and different, uh, different points of, of, of really of attraction 
that they, and they, they on their own, on their own they went out on this pr- pr- project which when they began uh, six weeks ago, it was sound like, like impossible, and they managed to, to reach now 90%. They managed, they managed to reach 200,000 shekel of the 250,000 that they were trying to raise, and they, uh, um, the 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 is really backing them and really think it's a wonderful thing. Instead of really being uh, depressed and uh, under what we went through, they're really trying to bring life and really because they real we really think that the real the only way to to really uh, overcome these challenges that that God has, has has put in front of us is to really understand that 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 these are things that we're going to take and turn them into into uh, points of strength and instead of points of 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 of, of weakness. And I think uh, this is a very important message in terms of our neighbors that they see that they won't be able to defeat us. And I can tell you that in this past summer, ten more families joined the Otniel. So we're going ahead. Why is Otniel a place that that is so, so much under attack? Uh, your neighbor on the right, your neighbor on the left, and you yourself uh, have been uh, targets of terrorism. So much so that today you even you know have a guard with you, make sure that uh, terrorism doesn't strike at you again. Why is that? Look, the different occasions you just mentioned right now are uh, really actually are you know, if we can say something something called a coincidence because. Uh, Rabbi Mark was killed on the road. I was, I was. There was the attack on me was in Jerusalem, and uh, Daphne Meir was the attack inside Otniel. Uh, the, the, but it is true that the road from Otniel until Kirat Arba, which is most people coming to Kirat Arba and Hebron, come usually from the north, from Jerusalem. But from Jerusalem, from Hebron, down south till almost towards Be'er Sheva, the roads there are are still unfortunately uh, need a, a little, a lot of reconstruction uh, activity. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Arab villages there who are under actually anarchy, which really means that they that 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 they uh, do whatever's on their their heart desires. Thank God, the Israeli security system really manages to prevent most and the vast majority of these attempts. But once in a while, they happen, and each one of these is is really uh, really painful. So one of the reasons that you were personally attacked was because of your Temple Mount activism, because of your interest in promoting normalization for Jewish prayer, equal rights for Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount. And one would think that you would have pulled back from that activity after the terror attack. Turns out that immediately afterwards you became a Knesset member. And not only did you become a Knesset member, but you're also publicizing the issues of the Temple Mount through the Knesset. Uh, An example of that is that you have a conference that you're running at the Knesset to promote equal rights on the Temple Mount. Uh, Am I I right? Is that the way to describe it? Look, uh, we uh, personally, as, as a faithful person, I understand that if God decided that I... I should remain alive. It means my, he thinks that my mission is not over. And not only does it mean my mission is not over, I think we can't allow uh, the terror to manage to, to, to succeed and reach any kind of benefits. Uh, if they try to, uh, to, to, to knock me down because I symbolize the connection between the Jewish people and the Temple Mount and Jerusalem, then it means that I have to double my activity. Ever since the, the attack two years ago, I put out a book. I uh, trained hundreds of uh, tour guides, and now I'm in the Knesset. And if I'm in the Knesset, it means that God wants me to, pr- to promote this activity from the Knesset. Uh, we will be celebrating two years, also marking two years to the, to the, to the assassination attempt. But we're also marking the day that the, ascend, that, that the, the Maimonides ascended to the Temple Mount, uh, and we will be 
uh, actually strengthening the connection between the Jewish people and the Temple Mount. Uh, it also, uh, it, with the late uh, announcement of the of UNESCO, who trying to deny any connection between uh, the Jewish people and the Temple Mount, we are here to show uh, different uh, archaeological findings. We're here to tell to tell about. Uh, the Temple Mount to show our activity and to show that we really had a, a year where where we have uh, the numbers of visitors at Temple Mount. Just just for example, this past Sukkot we had over 1,600 Jews visiting on Temple Mount. Where just a year ago on Sukkot we had uh, all, all less than 800. So we're really doubling the activity. The the, the we're really uh, uh, increasing, and and more and more Jews are, are understand that uh, we have to show that uh, that Jews are part of the natural view on the Temple Mount. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about in the, on this conference on the 7th of November in the Knesset. Those of you who want to join us, you're more welcome. Contact my office. You're welcome to, to, to be part of the, the event. We're having, we're having a conference here in the Knesset. And it will be uh, emphasizing the connection between the Jewish people and the Temple Mount. Okay, so just one last question. Uh, the conference, as you said, points out points to your miraculous survival. The Rambam's famous ninth uh, of Cheshvan day, where he comes sixth of Cheshvan, ninth of Cheshvan is Hebron. That's when it comes to to to, uh, to uh, uh, the tomb of the forefathers and mothers. But my question to you also is about the Prime Minister of Israel. The Prime Minister of Israel, your party, has really gone head to head with UNESCO. And my question to him, with all the uh, counter. Uh, uh, statements about the, his statements that the Jewish people have an eternal connection to the Temple Mount. What about the reality of the Temple Mount? How is it that the reality in the Temple Mount is that the state of Israel is the one that's actually upholding certain laws that one would call it a dehimitude of Jewish presence on the Temple Mount? Uh, in terms of Netanyahu, he feels that uh, we have to strengthen the uh, Hashemite regime in Jordan and therefore he really tries to give them uh, some kind of power and their claim to fame in the Muslim world is that they protect so-called the uh, Muslim uh, walk with the Muslim uh, uh, holy sites. But I think that, uh, that uh, we have to understand that in the past year uh, these, this government has made major steps uh, to outlaw the Islamic uh, or, or, uh, organization which was in charge, which was really promoting and inciting terror and hate. And we also uh, removed from the Temple Mount all of those people who were actually harassing and, uh, and, and promoting violence on the Temple Mount, the, uh, what was called the Morabitat and the Morabitun. And I think this, this is what one of the major reasons for the major change that we see on the Temple Mount, that really the visits to the Temple Mount in the past year have become much quieter, much more convenient than the past. And I think there's still a lot more to do, do but the, just the numbers will make the difference. There's more and more people that come, and therefore I call upon all uh, to come visit Temple Mount. It turn, let's help turn it into a world center for calling in the name of one and only God, a world center for tolerance, and instead a world center for peace, and instead of a world center for terror and incitement. Rabbi Huda Glick, thank you so much. Just just want to tell you, I personally went up on Yom Kippur and it was incredible. Thank you so much for all your good work and uh, may the memory of Daphna Meir and, and Mickey Mark, uh, Rabbi Mark, be, uh, be, be fixed through this new pathways for the children. Amen, amen, and a wonderful, wonderful uh, news and wonderful uh, good year for everybody. We're just beginning, finishing the holidays and we're going on to the new year. I wish everybody that we should have a blessed year and the light from Jerusalem should insp inspire all of you around the world. Shalom. Hi, this is Eve Harrow, host of Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. You can hear a new show from me every Sunday and every day of the week shows from another one of my very talented fellow show hosts. Reach me, Eve, at thelandofisrael.com and keep listening, everybody. We love your feedback. The Land of Israel, coming at you every day every week.
That's the Land of Israel Network on thelandofisrael.com. Shalom, everybody, and welcome back to the Yishai Fleischer Show here on the Land of Israel Network, landofisrael.com. We are broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are right now. I'm, don't you just love hearing my voice again? Didn't you just miss it? Didn't you just miss the podcasts that come out from Yerushalayim? I miss doing it, and there was just so much to talk about. I kept thinking to myself, God, if I just had a chance right now to record and tell you guys what's going on. Didn't have that chance, but so happy to be alive and renewed here at 5777 post the high holiday season here in Yerushalayim. Season's greetings, everybody, and uh, happy post-Sukkot, and welcome to Beit Midrash Pardes. We're at Pardes. We're at Pardes, the uh, Jewish Learning Center awesomeness. Pardes for all kinds of Jews and everybody together, and of course, if we're here, if I'm here, then everybody's, everything is here, right? Imanikan is a Kolkan, but certainly Rabbi Mike Foyer is here. Rabbi Mike, welcome to the program. Oh, it's so great to see you back, Yishai. Baruch Hashem and a sweet, happy new year. Gam Lamar. We got to throw off the shackles of 5776. It's over. It's like so yesterday. It's like we're in a new year now. I'm still recovering from the whirlwind. Oh, you know, I it's just... It's been like a, uh, a, a swirling mass with twigs and leaves and etrogs in there. Yeah. And a lot of kids. Yes, yes, but I, I got to tell you, I feel completely high, just totally high. I feel light and buoyant uh, uh, just because God just threw off the, the, the shackles and weights of sins and mistakes and, and just the, the, the blessings and curses of 5776 and, and renewed a new year yesterday, last day, the, the kind of post-Sukkot holiday day, which is called Isru Chag. Um, I took my kids to the beach. Hmm. Just to, just to have time with them, and then afterwards we went to the Holy of Holies, that great, uh, uh, um, just incredible uh, gift to us all, and that is Ikea of Israel, where, where the religious and ultra-religious Jews descended upon it like so many locusts, and, and we were eating the, the uh, cafeteria-style kosher food on Ikea um, uh, furniture all over the place. It was just awesome. Had the best time uh, yesterday, uh, and and feel feel very excited to be alive. The only thing is, I want to tell you is that uh, the only thing that I, that I'm not excited about today's show is is something I feel every single year, which is I'm not totally prepared. And what I mean by that is, like I I, I read through the Parshat Bereshit, but because of the speed, as you were talking about that 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 whirling. Uh, maelstrom of of of, of uh, holidays and, and and celebrations and food and drinking and kids and all that business, the the trying to master and you I think you mentioned this the last time we were together trying to master or even get a good grip on uh, certainly the end of the Torah which is full of hard to understand verses and and obviously a, a, a mysterious kind of language purposefully so and then to enter Bereshit which is the Torah portion that we're dealing with in the beginning, Genesis, i.e. God creates the world, also filled with a lot of mystery, at least narratively clear, but, but tr- truthfully, you know, the, the mystery that we're all grappling with, which is why, and some people are grappling with how, and, and, and just the beginnings of, of the world, the beginning of the biblical narrative. So, you know, it's hard to get a grip on it all as it like approaches you there it goes genesis bracious i think it's entirely appropriate because chaos precedes creation 
not just in the text, as we know, the land was, was void and nothingness, and there was darkness on the face of the deep. But even in the power of all these holidays that we just passed through, I always have the sense that all order breaks down. And I feel like, um, you know, there's a tradition that when we la- wave the lulav, the palm fronds, all week long on Sukkot, it's bound. Right? We, put, uh, we, we tie it together. And then there's a tradition that on the Hoshana Rabbah, on, the, on the, the great circling of the altar, or in our day at least, the, uh, the, the bima there in the middle of the, of the synagogue, that the, the, the Bach, one of the commentators, says you're supposed to take off the bindings so that when you wave in that last moment, you're just letting it all go. Mm-hmm. And then on Simchas Torah, I looked around at the end of Simchas Torah, and there's candy wrappers in the corners. There are kids asleep. There are old men that can't even walk anymore. I'm like, you can hear maybe in my voice I'm, I barely recovered. Right? The place is just... Mayhem. Absolute mayhem. Right. And the, and the furniture has been moved in a place which usually prizes order and quietness and focus. It's just all, and it's because I feel like in order to really break forth into the newness, there has to be a breakdown of what was. A little bit like birth. Like yes, birth very itself, much. which is like at the end Chaos. of the process, it's like a little chaotic. and A little chaotic. Right. It's like always like, if you've ever been to a birth, it's like... It's it's like it feels like it's it's like the the birth of life has to have like an element of the edge of death. There's like an every birth has got an element of like uh, it, it must be so because you can't be prepared for newness right. by definition because if you're prepared for it, then what comes forth is not actually new. Mm-hmm. It's just an imitation of what was. There must be that element of chaos and and dissolution in order to allow something truly new to emerge. Anyway, um, there was all, we had. Let's just go through it very quickly. We had Elul. I, I remember that on the show we were talking about getting ready for Elul, and mm-hmm. then there was Elul. I was uh, I was in America and in, in Los Angeles and Phoenix and in uh, San Diego. Then I came back. Then there was the army. I was in the army, missed the show there, and then there was Rosh Hashanah. Then there was the ten days between. Then there was Yom Kippur, uh, and then from Yom Kippur, get ready to build the sukkah, building the sukkah, Sukkot, first holidays. Uh, the last of the Sukkot holidays, Hoshana Rabbah, and then the last last day, this kind of like fourth. Uh, its own festival pilgrimage, kind of just for the Jewish people. Every all the all the Gentiles, all our friends said bye bye, and now it's just us and the, and God and on Shmini Atzeret on the last day. And I also got to see uh, a lot of my Gentile friends, uh, Christians and other friends, all kinds of people that are out there. And and they too came in for the Sukkot holiday, as it says in Zechariah. Got a chance to embrace them as well. I uh, got a chance to hang out with my friend Tommy Waller of Hayovel. Got a chance to really see a lot of, you know, a, a lot of the, the love that people have for God and for the God of Israel. And it all came down to <coughs> Shmini Yetzirah and, and, uh, and uh, Simchat Torah, which is the same day. Um, and on that day, when we finish the Torah, there's two cycles that begin, or two time trajectories. I'm speaking your language here. Two time trajectories. One is that we finish off with Kol Yisrael, with the words, with the last words of the of the Torah, the five books of Moses, and then we go back to Bereshit in the beginning. And then, in that very same uh, moment, we suddenly read, instead of going in a circular, analog way, we go linear, like a stopwatch, like a digital clock. We go forward in history with Joshua. And, and I, I think that, that, that that's the ultimate expression of what Judaism is. On the one hand, connected to the cyclical patterns, always going back to, to first principles, going back to the, to, to the root stories, to the anchors. And yet, 
with a goal to go to in a time trajectory. Sometimes Jewish people, <clears throat> let's say the early Zionists, they were great Joshua readers. They were great at a linear Judaism. They said, sure, we're Jews, and we're going forward to something awesome, but they weren't rooted in the analog and the rooted thing. And then some people are too rooted in the cycle, and they're just too stuck on just the way. Just going in circles. Just going in circles, and they don't refuse to move forward in time. That was that. That was that. That incredible moment that we had at Shmini Atzeret. Do you know what the right hand rule is? The right hand rule? Yes, in no. physics. No. It's an amazing thing. Have you ever hit the gas on your car too hard and fishtailed the wheels? Certainly. Right. That's Many the times right, on purpose. Right. There you go. Have you ever seen a gyroscope or sure. any type of spinning top? Both of those things happen because of what we call the right hand rule. That is, if you take your right hand and you curl your fingers toward the palm, right? If you m- curl those fingers in toward the palm, your thumb sticks up. And it is what's called torque, that any rotating force will generate a force which is normal to the plane of rotation. In normal language, that means when you curl your fingers toward and your thumb is sticking up, that that spin generates a force going upward, Mm -hmm. which is why when you punch the tires in a car, it will fishtail to the left because it's pulling out to the left. That is the essence of what you just described. Because, you know, people look at the Jewish people, they say these people are still doing the same thing. I mean, in a world of progressives, they're looking at us, and we take pride in the fact that, yes, we just finished a cycle of holidays that our ancestors have been doing for over 3,000 years. And I have a lot of pride in that and a lot of power from it, but a lot of people could look at it very easily and say, what? You're still doing the same thing. You're going around in circles. Right? Or one could look at that story of Joshua as the Zionists did and say, listen, enough of going around in circles. Let's just move forward. But what they've found, unfortunately, is many of those elements of our culture here in the state today have lost momentum. Right, that the power is found in the right hand rule. That our going around and around is what generates our forward momentum. Right, and we—it's critical to hold that balance that you just described. And I think you're correct in identifying that moment where we end and begin, and then we move forward, because you have to connect the circle in order to generate that moment to momentum to keep moving forward. And, and we live in a time where, where the Jewish people are moving forward so much. And we, we also read over the Shabbat of Sukkot. We read Ecclesiastes, and it said, Kohelet, and it said, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And I had to say, kind of in the, di- in the dialogue with, with the king of Jerusalem, Kohelet, with Ecclesiastes, I had to say, you know, I get your point, but I must say that there have been some pretty radical shifts me- in the last hundred years right like like there's been some, some like like everything from the jewish people coming back home to land of israel and gps like there are things that are wildly different today than ever before oh i mean listen i don't know how far i want to get into it the question is twofold number one do you mean what is meant by hadash what is really meant by new and the power of chidush of, re- of renewal is an important one for this Torah portion. The other one is, is the, that phrase, Tachar Hashemesh, beneath the sun, repeats itself throughout the book of Kohelet. And I believe it's to tell us that it's not that there's no newness. It's not that, that real chidush, that real renewal doesn't happen in the world. It's that it doesn't come mitachar Hashemesh. It doesn't come from the limited world which we're familiar with that is sort of standing in the light of day. That I believe, maybe not the GPS as much as the return of the Jewish people to their land, that these are expressions of the fact that don't be fooled by the horizon which you see. That there is also Ma'al Hashemesh. There is the world which is above the sun, and that, that where you are able to connect the two, which is ultimately the mission of the Jewish people, Lechaber ben Shemaim Va'aretz, right? To connect between heaven and earth. That that's where our power of renewal really comes from. And it's certainly what's driving the project here. 
it's just that my it's just that my kid asked me how does the phone know where we are <laughs> and my wife gave an answer and i was not happy with her answer i'm like well that's not exactly true it's not the satellites know where you are it's that the computer is reading three different satellite beams and and i was just like there are satellites helping me navigate to the beach here in the land of israel that's, that's kind of cool yes, but my point was is i was trained in in triangulation on on maps, and the ancient right. mariners knew how to do that with sure an astrolabe and, a, and the stars. I mean, the concept is not new. Right. The manifestation of it is. Certainly, and that's certainly. what it means, Tachar HaShemesh. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, not far from where I live uh, is a water-carrying uh, water uh, channel conduit mm-hmm. from Bethlehem. And over, I think, the course of something like 27 kilometers, it's got a gradation of 20 meters so, like, about a meter, a kilometer yeah. of gradation in order to bring water from Bethlehem to Jerusalem deep underground, the genius of, of the people of the past, these are the Maccabees. Yeah, it was the Hasmoneans. Right. We don't, we don't even know how they were able to do it. They're the next stop on our calendar. That's right, the next stop. Uh, speaking of renewal uh, and Chadash Tachtashamish, um, we're, we're now entering into... The ultimate renewal, which is Bereshit, which is, which is the new will of the world, before even the re. Just um, God makes a world. God decides to make a world. What I love about Judaism is that like, what you see is not what you get. Okay? For example, let's say you're a Gentile, you're a listener to the show. You may think that the ultimate final arbitration of your judgment is going to be on Yom Kippur. But if you're in Judaism inside or listening to the show, you'll know that, like, no, actually, it's uh, Shemini Atzeret. Uh, Hoshana Rabbah is the last day. But no, actually, it's Shemini Atzeret. Actually, and it keeps going like we have all these secret ways to still sneak in and get better judgment, a better deal. Uh, the other, the other, the other, what I mean to say about that is we have the book of Bereshit. It's like in the beginning. But we all know that Judaism is like, but there was a beginning before the beginning. We know that God, for example, chose the Jewish people before there even was a Jewish people, before there was a beginning. And I'll, we'll get to that in a second. And my, my simple question to you is, we read this word in the beginning, but the word in the beginning begs the question, why is there a beginning? Why? Why, God, if we assume now on the show, which I do assume, that there is a God and that the word of the Bible, the word of the Torah is totally true, Let's just take it on that. Let's not, you know, I'm not going to the place of like, did he, does he, did he, whatever. Let's just take the words as it is. That's the way I take it. Uh, That's how I live my life. That's how you live your life. Why, though? Why, God? I have a right to ask you. If you're going to write a book and you're going to start it with, in the beginning, Bereshit, then I have the right to say, like, why did you do it? Why did you make a Bereshit? Well, I mean, before I directly answer your question, I would like to note that the question why in that context is of limited use. I mean, the sages teach us in, in the Gemara and Chagiga that one should not ask what came before, what, what comes after, what lies above and what lies below. And that's not a moralist statement saying, no, 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 don't question, O thou doubter. It's a simple fact of human consciousness is that, is that when one comes up against the edges of comprehension, there are two things that happen, humility or arrogance. Humility is, wow, I, I just don't have the ability to grasp that. Arrogance is the making up of a story that explains one's own ignorance. Right, and so, and so therefore I'm a little wary of the question. Well, I, I, w- I would say that what you said right now is a very good answer to the question, but I think you have to ask the question to get that answer, meaning to say you have to ask, why did you make the world God? And then the answer is, you're not going to know. And I, 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 when I came to that conclusion, it actually mollified me, it satisfied me. I was happy to, that I asked the question and got back an answer like, sorry, buddy, 
You're not on the level and you never will be, nor is all your whole race. You won't know because I am God and you're not. And just that humility, as you talked about, actually was an answer to me. Okay. I mean, there is also a classic answer, which I find very moving. And in this sense, it's really more oriented toward the what do you do with creation as opposed to why did God make it? Um, but the sages tell us, you know, the idea that the world has a beginning is one of the most important theological assertions that Am Yisrael makes. And we, we're not such a people of theology, although we've fallen into that pit in the Middle Ages. Nevertheless, there are a few things that we agree upon. And what lies behind this idea that the world has a beginning is, to me, the most mysterious notion in God, which is, I'll say it in Hebrew first, the, which has an unfortunate translation in modern Hebrew, but it means that God desired a dwelling place here in the lower world. By the way, just, just parenthetically between me and you here, and I'm off the air, um, the way I, tr- I say it in Hebrew to other Israelis is, Hashem. I just yeah. add the word ba'olamot and, and if, it if solves it, the it problem. That problem. That's a good point. Yeah. Thank you. Just I usually just paraphrase. Right. Olamot um, I add and it, it, it works. It, it changes everything. Yeah. So just pause on that word desire. Because in the end of the day, that's the real answer the sages give us. Because God desired. Now, if you're going to ask the next question, which is like, what on, what on earth does that mean? That God desires, because in our limited... He desired what? Uh, maybe, I, maybe I didn't de- make... We desired a dwelling place, which means he desires relationship. He desired a, he, a dwelling place in the lower worlds. Right, meaning, and what are the lower worlds? The lower worlds are a world that could see itself as existing separate from God. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Break it down for, 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 the, for the listener here for a second. Yeah. God desi- God. In the beginning, in the beginning, really, there was nothing other than God. Right. And from God's perspective, which we are not privy to, there remains... Nothing other than God. Mm-hmm. And yet what creation is is the empowerment of a created that could perceive itself as something other than God. And God wanted to create an other. Yes. Why? Why? Because that separation, that otherness, is the necessary precursor to all relationship. He wa- God wants a relationship? God desires relationship because it's the only thing, as it were, that God can't have on God's own. Mm. There must be other in order that there right. be relationship. And therefore, the ability of a human being to deny God, to turn away, as we see in the story of Adam, to do that which God told him not to, is actually expressive of what the human being is. But it's not the end goal. Because the end goal is to take that ability and then turn toward God. Because you don't have a relationship with your foot. It's just part of who you are. Right. And therefore, no, there can be no meaningful relationship. You can only have a meaningful relationship with someone who can either choose to face you or choose to turn away. Right. And that, to me, is, is the ultimate answer why. And when I said this really leans toward the what does one do with creation as opposed to why, because now it, it solves so many of the questions. What, what, what am I supposed to do here? The answer is relationships. Relationships. You're building relationships. Right. Or, or I would take uh, another way to say it is, is kind of in the more... Chabad-esque uh, answer, which is our job is to bring God into the lower domains. And how do you do that? By building relationships. Well, that and also put, affixing mezuzah to a Jewish person's door or to somebody who loves the Bible's door. And I'm not going to be too pedantic, but I, would, I could go through every single one of the mitzvot and point out to you how they are expressions of aspect of relationship mm-hmm. between the human being and some element of creation and on its highest level between the human being and other human beings and ultimately, ultimately, between humanity and God. 
But it is to bring to bring people's consciousness to God the, the, well, that they the, would know that there's the other God. That's the ultimate tool of relationship. Just think about it. Someone who who lacks consciousness. I'm sure you have a relationship with people <laughs> who you might feel like you're not really connecting on the deepest plane. It sure. happens every once in a while, sure. right? Well, sometimes you have to evoke that depth within a person in order to have a relationship on that level. I love how my daughter says to me, "But but God is invisible. Why?" And I had to say to her, like, because because if he was visible, then we couldn't have a relationship with him because we'd have to accept him. We wouldn't be able to yearn for him. It would be a done deal. The world wouldn't have a purpose because we wouldn't be able to strive for God, yearn for God, try to, to, to see him in his invisibleness. And we would also limit God to our perception, right. which would be the greatest tragedy because mm. that's what they call idolatry. Wow. So there you go, folks. Bereshit. Let's just, uh, we can just close the show off right here. Okay, <laughs> there you go. The purpose of the world is, I, I, I want to tell you folks that what you just heard about, about the purpose of the world, I want you to, to, to think about it. Um, I, I think that the idea that, that God wants a place in the lower domains, that he wants a relationship, is, is, is something that should take us through 5777 the whole year. It means you can seek, I mean, in another way of saying this, by the way, is God wants to be known. And, and in the same way God wants to be known, and here's the beautiful, is that God has placed within each of us the desire ourselves to be known. And insofar as we attempt to express who we are and be known in the world in a godly way, then God is more, is more known, right? My being myself can push God out or can let God in. And that's all the laws of the Torah are meant to cultivate within me a godly way of becoming known in the world that makes God's name greater. You know, I bumped into one of your rabbis, Rabbi Daniel Cohen, in a very fabulous very wealthy and very uh, magnanimous uh, Jerusalem sukkah party for the uh, <laughs> like like some people like not for the rich and famous for the influential and for the activists and holy, and holy you know and it was awesome he was there and he can be found some of his uh, audio can be found at sulamiakov.com yes he's fantastic uh, and he's the rabbi of Bat Ayin I stopped him before he left, and I said, I ain't le- letting you leave till you give me some sweet Torah right now. <laughs> I tackled him. He said no, and then I had to tackle him to the ground. That's not what happened. Uh, he said, okay. And you know what he said to me? He said to me that it was, it was exactly the night that we brought in Aaron, the priest, into the sukkah. And he said to me, when you, when, you become, when you are a broadcaster of godliness, the way to fight off any haughtiness is to, and he was talking about the characteristic uh, um, aspect. Uh, aspect called hod. And he said, the way to do it is, is the way to give this kind of grace is through, uh, if you are an echo, a head of, of, of godliness, it's through hodaya, through thankfulness. The ultimate, if you are able to broadcast, the way to, if you're able to broadcast godliness, the way to uh, not get sick with any kind of selfishness or haughtiness, is to have turned to God and with a with a with a most sublime sense of thankfulness that you're able to 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 do something, and that is, is kind of the healing characteristic trait that will save you from any kind of uh, haughtiness. And and um, that was what he told me in that beautiful sukkah overlooking Jerusalem. We had there was a singer, there was an Israeli singer there, and he t- and he was like one of these you know Sephardic singers. Uh, you know, the one that doesn't maybe always wear a kippah, you know, and he had a little bit of, uh, his hair was bleached yellow a little and stuff like that. And you know what, uh, Blonde? He turned towards Harabai, towards the Temple Mount from a distance, and he 
he put his eyes, his hands over his eyes, and he said, Shema Israel, and they put it on reverb, right? So it was like the mic. So it was like, Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And it was like, he, he like, I don't know, I was like, it like, it like beamed into me the consciousness of God more than, more than any time before. And that reminds me that uh, the ultimate creature was created uh, here in the Torah portion of Bereshit, and that's mankind. Mankind, ultimate creation in the image of God, uh, a bit of an animal in the sense that it's a living creature, a carbon-based creature, uh, and has base desires, but at the same time, uh, put a, a soul put in there, which is a piece of God, and a super cray supercomputer called a brain put into it with un, un, unstoppable powers, unbelievable, almost, almost, you know, uh, uh, and everyone has, has got this own microprocessor in their in their in their head there. And this man, um, you know, and God is looking at him, and he's like, "You name the animals," and God's like looking to see what this creature that he gave some some kind of independence to is going to name the animals around him. And, and the serpent comes up to him, and the serpent says, basically, and this is, we talked about it last year, but again, this, this idea comes up, and it says, God, that sublime thing? No. It's just a charlatan. He ate from the tree. He has become God. He wants to keep you out. He wants to keep you out. He's just like you and me. He just wants to keep you down, man. The man wants to keep you down, and he doesn't want you to eat from the tree. So don't be a friar a sucker, be in, eat from the tree. That's the, the argument of the serpent. How does the height of heights get reduced to the low of lows? How does God get reduced to um, the most kind of, you know, banal charlatan who tries to trick us out of blessings. This is the origin of all idolatry. Once again, it's the same phenomenon we described before because when you reach the edges of your consciousness, when you really reach the limitations of your ability to know, you have a choice, which is to live in wondrous humility or to reduce the world to your image. Because don't forget, when we say that humanity was created in the image of God, there's an implication that God actually is in the image of humanity. Right. Because I don't know what God looks like. Right. But I can look in the mirror. Right. And and that is the crux question is what will it mean to you to be a human being? Will you need to kill God in order to live? In order to be human, does that mean that you have to reduce God to yourself, which is exactly what the snake, as you so nicely said, wanted Adam to do. You you you, you want to be free? You want to really reach your potential? Then you have to understand that there is no one greater than you. Because if anyone is greater than you, then you've just been reduced, right? The man is keeping you down, like you said. But the other voice in that mix is the voice of wondrous humility, which is, I, I don't know. The world is wide open. It lies beyond me. And, and because there is that which is beyond me, well, then I will always be able to grow. And that's the other way of understanding what it is to be created in the image of God. Is No, no, that doesn't mean that I'm going to reduce God to my image. It means that I'm going to strive within myself to be godly. And don't forget that at this point, the only image we've had of God is that of creator, mm -hmm. which is the great capacity of, of humanity, with all due respect to supercomputers, is not in its computing ability. It's in its artistic creative, right? in the ability to imagine that which is not yet. 
right? Because the, the, the power, I mean, you, you mentioned this, the, in the naming, there's so much in this Parsha. I mean, it's really such a struggle to even articulate. You know, it, it just parenthetically, you know that there's another, an, an older way that the Jewish people used to do it was that they used to read the Torah portion. The Torah used to be, the cycle was three years. Three years. years. And I said to him, and we talked about this last time we were yep. together. Imagine if the, the, the book of the, the Torah portion of Bereshit was split into three. It'd be great. It would be great, right? I actually always start reading it a week in advance. <laughs> I start to double down in the last week because otherwise there's, no, there's just no way to you get You can't get through it. No, you can get through it, but then it's a technical act. And right. why am I doing that? Right. So, but here there's a very important element in that naming. Here's a strange incident you described. God brings the animals to, to humanity and says, oh, let's see what Adam calls them. Then text actually says, and that which he calls them indeed was their name. Adam, he's the namer. Right, he is the namer. And so you could take one of two things and what here. Does, what does he even get these names? Wow, well, ah, that's the key. Is that He looks he, at it, it's like, that's a, that's a lion. Yes. Lion. Yes, and, and this is where the snake is so precise in his understanding of human psychology. Because Adam's experience of God saying, ah, you're right. That is a line to be taken one of two ways, which, which is the one the snake says, which is, you see, you're just like God. He brought you creator. these things. You're a creator. You're a creator. Right? And you're creative. You are creative. You have the capacity to define and give name and form. You're awesome. You, yeah. And, well, the ego element is, right. is clear in there. But the other side of this is incredible is that Adam actually is the voice of creation. If you think about it, in, in the hierarchy of creation from the inanimate. Well, not in the first few days. Just in the end. Well, eh, careful. Oh, you mean he's the first voice. Is that what you mean? He is. No, he, he is the voice of creation. There's a point at which God steps back, so to speak, and says, right on Shabbat, that God finished all the malacha, all the, the active, intensive work of creating the, the substance and even the potentiality of creation. That's how I understand Shamaim Vagetz, right? That Shamaim, this heavenly realm, is all that which could be, which is not yet. And Aretz, the land, is that which is, right? And the, the, the power of the human being is to connect that which is not yet to that which is. And the tool we use to do that is language. We are the voice of creation, mm. which is why the highest task of the human being is prayer. And not just prayer in the sense of supplication and my own personal need and my, my, my pain and narrowness, which is real and true, but prayer in the sense of giving voice, as you said, hodaya, mm -hmm. of giving voice of that awesome sense of gratitude for being. And that's why we do the show. This is why we do the show. Uh, by the way, speaking of voice and prayer and gratitude, you remember that the Apollo missions, before they landed on the moon, before that, there was the, 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 the first mission that they circled the moon for the first time and there was also a broadcast. They broadcast, they read from the book of Bereshit. They were in the yes. beginning. And it's like, that was awesome. That was an apex of humanity, an incredible thing. And it was also a great sense of humility because instead of like, instead of like look at us, we're scientific and now we're ca capturing the moon and we know everything, they read from the Bible, from Bereshit, from Genesis. I always thought that was incredibly it's moving. because they touched the wonder of creation right. there in getting outside of right. the orbit of the earth and having a completely different horizon. They were struck by the wonder of it all. Wow. That, I, I think I would have been struck as well. Um, um, uh, this year, I want to, uh, I, I've known, since I've started working in Hebron and Hebron, where the tombs of the uh, founding fathers and mothers are uh, of the Jewish people, I've been struck more and more that the founding fathers are oftentimes either mentioned or, or hinted to in various, in every Torah portion, in every Torah portion. And it would make a lot of sense that subsequent to the, their arrival, you would find a hint to them in every Torah portion. Mm -hmm. 
Interestingly enough, and there's only two Torah portions prior to Lech Lecha, when we meet Avraham, Abraham, or Avram at the time, right? Fascinatingly, uh, in the, basically, sec- right in the beginning of the, the second chapter of, of the book of, of, the, of the Torah portion of Bereshit, of Genesis, there's a fantastic phrase, which is in Hebrew, Elo toldot ha-shamayim va'aretz behi bar'am, beyom asot Hashem elokim eretz v'shamayim. In English, these are the products of the heaven and earth when they were created on the day that Hashem, God, made earth and heaven. And the uh, word Behi Bar'am has a little hay in it. And very famously, uh, Behi Bar'am, the letters can be rearranged to spell Be'avraham because of Abraham. Abraham, that is why you created the world, because of Abraham. Uh, let me read the note here in the beautiful uh, uh, art scroll blue chumash that you should all get, the stone chumash. It says that meaning God created the world for the sake of Abraham because he was the epitome of kindness, one of the pillars of the world. This suggests further that Abraham was one who achieved God's purpose for the universe because until he came on the scene, humanity consistently failed to live up to its mission. That is why Abraham earned the right to be the progenitor of Israel, the notion that he was chosen by God, uh, the nation that was, excuse me, the nation that was chosen by God to receive the Torah. So with all due respect to art school, I, I, have, a, I have a different relationship to this phrase. It's very important to note that between the first chapter and the second chapter of, of Genesis are two different stories of creation. And it's a little bit beyond the scope of our discussion here, but people who haven't spent time with that, it's important. Go read the first chapter, then read the second chapter, and ask yourself, what is going on? Why am I hearing this story twice? And then look very closely, because the opening line of the Torah is, Bereshit bara elokim. In the the beginning, God created. Bet, resh, aleph. That is a subject-object relationship. God is doing the action. Creation is receiving, so to speak. Right? Now, in the second telling, it's behibaram, which, you want to try to tell me what construct that is? Um, 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 through its creation, but it's not yeah. like... Through its being created. Through its being created. There is an element of participatory right. nature in that. Right. And that's the essence that Abraham brings. Right. This is the difference, is that up until Abraham, nobody argues with God. People supplicate, people appease... People are grateful or people sin. Right. But Abraham is the first, and we'll talk about it when we get there, when God says, well, I've got to tell Abraham what I'm going to do to Stom. A whole new world is born in the fact that Abraham stands up to God and says, you can't do that. He is the first consciousness which offers real relationship and therefore helps to define what creation will be as opposed to just A respectful, loving but at the same time, visionary opposition to saying, you're more than that, God. <laughs> he says, the judge of all the earth isn't going to do justice. I'll hold back because oh we're going to get God. to it in the right time. Yeah. But I want you to appreciate that the participant, by the way, toldot what are toldot? The history of? No, what are literally? They're offspring. The offspring. You can only have offspring through the interaction between opposites. Mm-hmm. No matter what wow. wonders our society comes up with and all the definitions we may give to gender offspring come through the dynamic interaction of opposites and therefore in order for a real living creation for to be to have that power of creation then god must make a creature who can stand up and say no and avram because he's committed to the relationship. I mean, anybody can stand up and say no and walk away. That's not creation. But because Avram is committed to the relationship with God, he is that element planted here, as you so nicely put your finger on, at the second story of creation, which allows creation to actually be 
toledot, not just a passive recipient of the divine will, in which case, what's its meaning? I mean, God creates an automaton. An automaton will do whatever God says. There's no meaning to it. No, God's able to create a world which can then choose to fulfill God's will. That is a masterful creator. Right. And that really brings it down. That's us pulling it down uh, as opposed to God sending it down. That's Absolutely. the participatory nature. And that's, that's the purpose of the world, right? That's what we were talking about. Awesome stuff. There's so much more in this Torah portion. Garden of Eden, man and woman, uh, first uh, kind in Hevel, the first child is born. The first child that is born uh, to a woman is the first child that murders. Very tough stuff. Lots to talk about, <clears throat> but enough that we digest uh, what we started talking about today. Let us now uh, take a little bit of uh, detour for a second and remind everybody we, we just got a two more minutes here, a few more minutes. Today uh, is uh, we're getting ready for Torah portion Bereshit. This is the Yishai Fleischer Show, landofisrael.com, Spiritual Cafe, Rabbi Mike Foyer. We're at Pardes. We're also hooked into Sulam Yaakov. And we get your emails at Yishai at Ishai at the land of Ishai at the land of I ask people to write an email with the subject line, I am a listener or I'm a listener. Okay? And like, we got an email uh, from a, a great listener of ours, a good friend, Tammy, out in Singapore. And she's out there <clears throat> teaching. She's, she does a lot of stuff, but she's also teaching out there. She says, on a different note, given the lack of sufficient Jewish education here, I try to help organize some informal education for teens. And she says, I'm not an educator by training nor an expert in these fields, uh, but, but she is um, very concerned with the Jewish education out, out there. And she says that she's running a, t- a program entitled uh, Are We People of the Book or People of the Facebook? Based on Shimon Peres's, uh if you recall, that, that um, uh, video called uh, Be My Friend for Peace. And um, in any case, she says the idea is for kids to divide in half and debate both sides of the quote. Are we people of the book or people of the Facebook? And she says, uh, then I'll focus some pros and cons of social media, but ultimately the point is about our identity, our essence, and as a people of the book, and the unchanging book that continues to live and guide us today. Given that you always give new, you guys give new perspectives and insights uh, to think about, I wanted to know, I wanted to throw this out to you to see if you had any interesting insights, sound bites, references, etc., that you suggest I share with the kids about people of the book or people of, of the Facebook and, and I'm, I'm dropping this on you uh, uh, from Tammy to, to, to think about, to pontificate upon. Well, the, the first thing I would just reiterate what we said before is that we're people of relationship. Right. And so, I mean, Facebook cuts both ways. I mean, if it is a door to a relationship of depth and meaning, then it's a great bridge for connection. But if it is a substitute and becomes a, uh, a, mean, a mode of a superficial action, interaction, then I would reject it out of hand. Um, the flip side is in being people of the book. The question is really, what's our story? Because though we are people of the book, our story is really the story of the oral Torah, right? As we've been going through and seeing in so many ways that the, the story, the written text of, of creation seems to be delivered to us in order to trigger questions and not to provide answers. It's one of the great mistakes. It's one of the ways we differ with um, Christianity in many respects and certainly a, a more fundamentalist bent in all religions is that this text is meant to beg questions, not to provide answers. Right. Right. And, and in which sense, then, it, are we people of the book? Only if that book is a living story and we see ourselves as writing the coming chapter. Mm-hmm. But do you, have, do you have any, do you have any um, kind of 
good good things for her to to for Tammy to share with the, with the kids that you think kind of are good educational tools. Like I'll give a few examples of my own. I'll let you think about it. I found when I taught young people that there's a lot of racy parts in the Torah, and those racy parts are exactly what you just said. They make you ask questions, and they take raciness with what would seem inappropriate and have an incredible biblical take on it and a lot of times a lesson out of it. One of those examples is Yudava Tamar. The story of Yudan Tamar is a fascinating story with lots of depth, lots of things, and we'll, we'll get to that when we get to Parshat Vayeshev. But I taught that a lot of times. And I found that kids, instead of whitewashing the racy parts and skipping over them, the opposite. The Torah is like, I'm kosher, read me to the kids. And I find that reading those stories to the kids and having them deal with those questions and, and enjoying the racy aspect, but also coming out with holiness is, is, uh, is very powerful. I would also add that um, I think that one of the things that I'm only, at the age of 40 now, really starting to come to, and I think this, this ties into what, a lot of what you're doing, Rabbi Mike, which is when you see the breadth of Jewish history, when you connect to, first thing, kids need a uh, Jewish uh, uh, calendar. Not, not a, I don't mean a calendar of, of the dates. I mean to say they need a, a timeline. Yes. They need to see Absolutely. the timeline. Clarify the timeline because without a timeline, it all becomes all jumbled. I never got a timeline. I think that all kids in Judaism should get a timeline. What is First Temple? What is Second Temple? Who are the players? Explain to them where Esther fits into that story. Explain to them where the Maccabees are in that story. Those are different times, different periods, different issues. And then give them, give them a taste of a story from every part of the timeline. Uh, what the Jews were like in Spain. And there's fantastic tools. My wife and I, we are purchasers of Jewish media. We have Rabbi Wine movies about Rashi and Rambam. They're great. They are great. They are so good to watch. They're cartoon movies with Leonard Nimoy playing the voice of Rambam. It's great. It puts you right into the period piece, okay? Uh, another example of that is a movie that I like very much, which I think is great for 13 to 16-year-olds, which is Masada. Masada with Peter O'Toole. It's just awesome. What I like about movies like that is that it puts you into a visual and, and story-like connection. Get the kids into the story, but tell them where that is on the timeline. There's one more resource in that respect. Wonderful, wonderful organization called Aleph Beta. right On the internet-based, incredible educational videos. High quality, very informative. Yeah, they're doing a great job. You know, I remember the book. Do you remember the book as a driven leaf? Oh, absolutely. I have it on my shelf. Right. So I, I thought to the book, I thought, whatever, whatever I thought of the book, what I liked about the book was that it put me into the period. Like Rabbi Akiva became a person. Mm-hmm. Alicia Benaboya became a person. I like those kind of books. Or another book similar to that a little bit is uh, uh, what's called All My Glorious Brothers. Right. You know. I could recommend also my last book. It's called The Lamp of Darkness. Absolutely. It's a way to really step into the world of the prophets and, and uh, the Bible. Right? You can find it on Amazon. If you read Kindle, you can download it for free. Right. Book two is coming out soon. Great. Very exciting. And, and what I'm saying, Tammy, I think what we're saying is, t- to me, two things. One, teach them stories. First thing, first thing that's generally what I believe in. Nothing stories. more important. Stories. Tell the stories. Stories, stories, stories. And, and at the same time, when you tell the stories, help them plug it in to the... Uh, timeline. Help them understand where that happened and how the progress went through. I think also that fits very well with Bereshit. Start at the beginning and, and give it the timeline. Rabbi Mike Foyer, we're out of time. I want to thank you so Speaking much for joining me. That's right. I want to thank you so much. And I, I want to bless you for a great, successful new year. Lots of creativity, lots of health, lots of Shalom Bayit, Parnassah, all the good things. And I hope that we continue to, to broadcast in strength. 
uh, to the world. More great Torah out there, more great listeners out there. Connect a lot of people. I want to wish you a Shana Tova, and as we say in Yiddish, a good winter. Amen. A good winter, a happy winter. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed the show today. I enjoyed making it. It was an awesome privilege to speak with Ambassador Michael Oren about his new book, Ally. He's an amazing person. It was great to be in the Prime Minister's office. And it was great to speak with Rabbi Yehuda Glick right outside of the Knesset about his projects, his efforts to make Israel stronger, more connected, more lively, more vibrant. And of course, Rabbi Mike Foyer, Spiritual Cafe. It's all there for you to make you part of this great story. We got to have energy for this new year. This can't be last year. It's got to be the new year. 5777, you got to be pumped up, energized. We got to give it all the koach, all the strength that we have because we're part of an amazing time. Don't let anybody drag you down and tell you it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. Israel is massive. This is the time. There's never been a time like this. And this is certainly the time for me and you to be part of something. This is our opportunity. It's a God-given opportunity, and we ain't going to blow it. We're going to be a part of it. Folks, stay tuned. Write me an email, Yishai, thelandofisrael.com, Yishai, thelandofisrael.com. Connect to me on social media and every single other way. Don't forget to connect to the story of Israel, the greatest story ever told. You're a part of it wherever you are. Stay tuned, stay strong, and shalom.